0: I think oftentimes on science podcasts and radio shows, you're going to have the host who's going to draw elaborate stories to explain a scientific concept, and sometimes that's a little bit overdone. But what if a Trojan horse approaches the cell membrane, and inside that Trojan horse is a peptide destined to kill the cell? My name is Louis Coleratolo and I am a PhD student at the University of Guelph trying my absolute best to get a degree in food science. And in my meantime, I make exaggerations of stories from scientific truths. Okay, maybe not exaggerations, rather retellings of what's happening in science in a way that actually makes a little bit more sense to people. I like talking with other graduate students to see what they're doing and try to figure out why anyone else should care. So in this particular episode, we are talking with recently official Dr. Serena Chirin, who I have been told multiple times does not make deceitful peptides, but certainly makes peptides that do a couple things that maybe some cells might not like. In short, peptides are itty-bitty proteins and sometimes they do things that we want them to do that other cells don't want them to do, like kill other cells. But let's hear Serena say something about that. So for
1: example, um, a lot of cancer treatments actually are looking at that because there would be peptides and other compounds that can target, you know, a cancerous cell versus a healthy cell, because cancerous cells will have a different uh, outer membrane or different things on their outer membrane that normal healthy cells don't.
0: So if you want to know how these peptides do the dirty deed of killing cancerous cells and other cells for that matter, you're going to have to listen to this whole episode. But while you're listening, keep in mind, Serena is very recently just become a doctor and I am still in graduate school. And we honestly don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Serena. How are you doing today? I'm good. How's it going with you? Hi, I'm quite well over here. Thank you for asking. Could you do us a favor and just give us your educational background?
1: Sure, so I got my bachelor's in science in the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, where I studied biochemistry and I specifically focused on enzymes and proteins. And I did a senior year project in that area in the lab of Dr. John Honnick. And that was really cool and got me very interested in that interface where chemistry meets biology and where we can apply chemistry with or biological problems. And that led me to start my PhD at the University of Alberta where I worked with uh, another John, Dr. John Vetteris, and there I worked uh, specifically on bioactive compounds, so things that would be applicable in the, what we call the real world <laughs> and uh, have different roles. And I worked on a few peptides, so small proteins, that have different biological activities. So, for example, a lot of my work looked at antimicrobial peptides, and those are small chemical compounds that are able to combat bacteria and other pathogens and I guess in the future, become something like an antibiotic. And that's where I'm currently just finished. I just graduated this spring. Um, and I'm, I guess, looking forward to starting a postdoc this fall. And I'm moving on to San Diego, which is exciting. Bit of a weather change from Edmonton, where I'll be starting a postdoc in Dr. Phil Dawson's lab. And here I'll once again be looking at peptides and other ways of making these peptides more active, more accessible. Um, more bioavailable and i guess kind of generally improving their functions for applications and um, various uh, therapeutic applications
0: so then i technically introduced you incorrectly didn't i i should be saying hello dr serena
1: yes i guess that's true i don't I don't know when people start using their signature. I like signing things with Dr. Serena, but yeah. it sounds weird when you hear it. I don't think I would reply to that. If someone said that, I wouldn't turn around, I don't think.
0: You're still new to the whole thing. Like, it would be like strange. Like, who are you talking about?
1: Yeah, it's a bit surreal. Not going to lie. I think it, everyone thinks it, or I used to think it was a big thing. And then it was kind of almost anticlimactic. Here's your degree. You're a doctor now. And I was like, okay, that was,
0: <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. was accumulated
1: uh, I... in like a two hour exam.
0: Yeah, like, I need a job now. I don't care if I have this title. I need a job. I need to get paid.
1: Pay is nice.
0: Last time I checked. Uh, So you work with itty-bitty little proteins, and you call them peptides. Um, I imagine a lot of other people call them peptides, too. But you referred to peptides today. Uh, What what in the world is the difference between like a protein like, you know, muscle building, you know, whey protein and this little peptide? What? They're not the same, are they?
1: Uh, How do I word this? They are, but they aren't. I think that comes down to a lot of specific details. So, for example, some of them that are quite large. Um, you probably would be able to call it protein. And there's some debate on, um, I guess, how many units of amino acids. So the amino acids are the building blocks to make up proteins and peptides. And there's kind of a general idea that 60 or more amino acids is a protein and less than that is a peptide. However, when you have peptides that kind of bind together or build upon each other, they would be larger but are still called peptides. And the interesting part that brought me into peptides from I guess the protein side is that there's a lot more um, variety that you can find in these small molecules compared to a big protein. And a lot of the modifications you can make, you can make macrocycles. So that's like, you know, the peptide becomes a circle instead of a linear compound. You can put different functional groups on there without changing the shape. And for example, the bigger proteins that you think of when you have um, like you said, like the whey protein and things like that, those could still be peptides. And actually, a lot of the uh, like the bodybuilding things, you know, people take specific amino acids. So those would be like the units that make up peptides and proteins. So in a way, they're the same. It's just a more specific definition of the compound.
0: Okay. So then do you have like groups and academic circles where some are like, no, that doesn't technically count as a peptide. And it's just like a whole bunch of people in one room arguing about this small little definition.
1: I think they definitely are. None of the rooms I've been in, uh, but I could definitely <laughs> see Don't that Don't go to debate. those rooms. I think the uh, the other big debate in it, and I've heard for sure is between proteins and enzymes.
0: Of course. Some
1: enzymes are a specific type of protein, but like, where's the line and what do you draw and what do you like consider an enzyme? I think is also sometimes um, very passionately debated, let's
0: say. We love to have something to fight about, right? That's true.
1: You always have to have the intellectual debates, I think, usually sparked by that kind of idea. Yeah.
0: More or less a cat fight, but you know, intellectual cat fight. <laughs> Pro fight. There you go. There you go. So you work with these peptides. Sometimes they're really small. Sometimes they're a little bit larger. And then you were talking about like building different structures from these things. So so when we think about a protein, it's made from these building blocks you called amino acids. Um, for some reason, I'm introducing a lot of things as you called them. I don't, I don't know where that's It's almost
1: like from. that's their real name. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, like that's, that's what they are, everyone. We've all decided that like 150,000 years ago. Um, so you, you work with these uh, amino acids, which are building blocks. And you said with the peptides, you can sort of create special structures. Uh, what, what in the world do you mean by that?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I think uh, a simple way of, I guess, analogy that has been used a lot in the field, so it's, it's not my own, but I really like it, is the idea of like a Lego set. So you have these little Lego blocks that can be different colors, different shapes, and you can build them into different structures depending how you put them together. So although majority of peptides and proteins are made from the 20, we call them 20 canonical amino acids or 20 common amino acids, all these acids can then be modified further and make more. And depending on the order that you find them in, so let's say you know you have a peptide that has like ABC, you could also have a peptide that is ACB. And when you grow these compounds longer and longer, eventually they have different functions. And especially in the protein stage, or once they become larger, we uh, say that they fold onto themselves. So these different groups find each other in space and are attracted through different forces. And then can form shapes. So if you imagine, um, what would be a good analogy, something like a piece of yarn, right? You have it in a nice ball and it's neat and organized. And then if you take it apart and try to refold it again in the same ball of yarn, it will never work out for you the way it did originally because that's like it's what we call a native structure or a native function that it likes to have. So things like that could mod- be modified at a chemical level. So for example, you know, putting a nitrogen where an oxygen used to be. And that could actually have a huge impact on the structure and function is what we call them. So not only will the structure be changed, but then what the peptide or protein can do will also be changed. Um, I guess there's a lot of creativity available in the chemical space on what you can do with them. And of course, you know, like 80 plus percent of that will be what we call a non-functional protein or would actually lead to something that you don't want. So it has to be a very specific uh, way that you're modifying these peptides in order for it to have a... I guess, downfield desirable function.
0: So you can't just be like, you get a nitrogen, you get a nitrogen, you get an oxygen, and then you mix it all in a glass beaker and you look at the color and you're like, yes, this is a peptide.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think at the base, it would be a peptide, whether it's a useful or not peptide would be the difference. And I I used like the nitrogen oxygen example, but you can put almost anything you want on there. You know, you could put some halogens, you could put some sugars, you could put some fatty acids or lipids on there. So you can really modify these small molecules to be almost unrecognizable at the end. So they are peptide based, but we also have a, a, a lot a big field, sorry, that is called peptidobimetics. So it's actually, it's peptide based and peptide in origin, but then due to modifications and different things you can do, it almost looks unrecognizable
0: by the end. So these are kind of like the designer options. Like we have genes, but then there's designer genes and it's like, oh, these are, oh, Dr. Serena made these genes. Like this is her peptide. Like, oh, I love it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then they're... um, I guess the interesting part or what brought me to this area is how um, different a small molecule can become based on, like I said, you know, one chemical difference or one small difference will change its color, change its function, change its fold. There's a big area in which people look at uh, what we call computationally designed or de novo designed peptides. So instead of actually having to make every single variation of something we can computationally input variables it goes hand in hand with things that can happen in the lab so you would design a peptide on your computer make it in the lab test it out and see if your design was good or not and then go back and put that information into your computer recalculate things and come up with ideally a better design so kind of back and forth between experimental data and computational data, you can come to optimize your peptide is what we say, or make the best peptide you can possibly make for whatever
0: function you're targeting. So do you do some of this uh, computational peptide design?
1: I personally haven't, but I'm hopefully going to do that a little bit in my postdoc. Uh, A lot of my background is more on actually isolation and identification of naturally occurring peptides. So I'm kind of more on the search of peptides that we can optimize.
0: All right, so where am I going to find some naturally occurring peptides? Other than everywhere, like right now on my body, where am I going to find some naturally occurring peptides?
1: You already stole my answer. They are basically everywhere.
0: (laughs) Uh, A big one
1: for humans especially is the human plasma. So in your blood system, there's quite a few peptides. So a lot of your immune system... Uh, secretes different peptides that can do different things Uh, your stomach as well it's full of lots of really good goodies in there so you're going to find lots of peptides and peptide products in there ones that you eat as well as ones that your body will digest or break down into other things
0: okay so a peptide is part of us we're not a peptide but there's a bunch of peptides in us Yes, that's very accurate. There's,
1: there's many things, but peptides and proteins are definitely one of them.
0: They're they they're a class of things that are inside of us. Um, all right, so they do a lot of different functions, as you said. So you said like you know peptides that are in your immune system, in your in your uh, what was it, what part of the blood was it you said?
1: Uh, we call it plasma. So it's just it's not a red blood cells, but it is in the other fluid that is present in the It's the, the
0: other blood. goopy stuff. It's yeah. the stuff minus the red. And it's like um, it's it's like kind of squishy, isn't it? Have you ever like played with the plasma before?
1: And actually, if you take the blood cells out, it is very similar to
0: water. Oh, then what am I? Th- oh, platelets. What's the difference between that and platelets?
1: Platelets are a component of plasma.
0: Oh my goodness! See now, here's the here's the thing, is now I've I've, I've entered this rabbit hole of immunology. This is not your field. No, it's not. <laughs> so don't quote me on any of it. Well, jump back, okay, back to peptides. So they do a whole bunch of different functions. You said there's some in your stomach. There's some in your immune uh, system, and they're doing a job, per se. Um, What can you say about making these small modifications and changing their jobs?
1: I mean, changing as in entirely flipping a function is quite rare. When I see change or modification, what we're usually looking for is to find ways to improve these properties it already has or add properties that we know are there. So for example, in my field, since I'm looking at antimicrobial peptides, a lot of organisms pretty much everywhere make these peptides that naturally will attack other organisms. So for example, if a bacteria finds a spot it really likes, it's gonna wanna attack other bacteria to not steal its spot. So we call that like an ecological niche and that bacteria will defend itself by secreting these peptides as like warheads against other. So it's kind of like a bio warfare happening, let's say in the soil. So one bacteria is secreting something, the other one will secrete something else and that peptide there is already naturally active against other bacteria so it naturally has that function that in my case antimicrobial function that we look for however if you're going to take that out of the soil and try to give it you know to a patient or try to use it in um, different hospital settings What you'll find is that perhaps it's not stable, so it breaks down because it's not in its native environment, or perhaps it can't enter human cells the same way that it can enter bacteria cells. So then really what we're looking for is to improve on its function by adding different things. So for example, things that make it more soluble, so you know, it would prefer water rather than soil, or things that make it more stable so it doesn't get degraded in, you know, a minute after injection or ingestion. That's the
0: (laughs) So, okay, you are in the business of making slight modifications to make these peptides more useful for us. Yes. And let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about what we mean when we say antimicrobial. Um, I think uh, during the uh, the super fun pandemic that we've had, we learned a lot about little, uh, little mean viruses that uh, do some pretty bad harm and we can't see them and we want to kill them. And we have heard antibacterial, you know, hand soap. We've heard about the hand sanitizers. We know about the surface cleaners. We've gotten so much of this information, but could you just give us just the basics of what we mean when we say antimicrobial?
1: I'll answer this in two parts. So antimicrobial just basically means something that can prevent microbes from growing. So that could be viruses, that could be bacteria, that could be pathogens. It could be a number of different things. And a lot of what I kind of alluded to earlier when I said that the bacteria cells will be different than human cells. So each little organism kind of has an outside membrane that protects it. So a little barrier that protects it and that barrier can be disrupted with things like soap. So when you add these disinfectants to surfaces, a lot of them will be antimicrobial because it will disrupt the outer membrane. That these pathogens have, and then therefore it will kill it, because it can't live as a single-cell organism without that membrane, basically. Kind of
0: like popping a balloon.
1: Exactly. You're basically popping a balloon, secreting all its cellular goodies on the outside. It's
0: balloon juices.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, However, if you break it down, there are things that are antiviral. So that would be a lot of what we heard in the news about antiviruses or anti COVID, since COVID is a virus, which is slightly different than antibacterial, which focuses specifically on bacteria, which is more of what I looked at.
0: Okay. All right. There's good bacteria, there's bad bacteria. In this case, you want to you want to incapacitate the bad bacteria.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So you're using these little warheads and I thought that was an interesting part. These these peptides, these proteins, they're not autonomous. They're not like, all right, now I'm going to go kill this bacteria over here. They don't have free thought, do they?
1: No. It would be cool if they did. To our knowledge, they don't.
0: <laughs> to our See, that's a good point. We we don't know how to ask them.
1: No. I I think they have feelings perhaps, but um None that we know how to interpret.
0: (laughs) And I feel Um,
1: that. So that's a good point, actually, because that's something, for example, that you would want to kill as many bacteria as possible, but you don't want to harm human cells. So that specificity is what we say or that, you know, uh, ability to distinguish between different things that the peptide will attack comes back to its structure. So depending how it's folded or what it looks like, cells are able to recognize it or not recognize it. And that kind of goes back into the antiviral world. Uh, a lot of the, um, you know, I think it's been in the news, but the spike protein and what that means. So that protein is able to recognize human cells and that's how it infects them. But however, it, it cannot infect everything. And there's been a few mammals that right, have been infected, um, like tigers and cats and things like that. However, you take that out and put it in, let's say, a fish, there hasn't really been any cases, to my knowledge, of the spike protein attacking fish so that protein or is a large peptide is able to distinguish between what it's attacking
0: so would you say that this concept this specificity as you called it what? i can't stop myself from using that i
1: did not make that up i swear
0: <laughs> yeah i know right like i don't even know where this is coming from this specificity is um sort of like a weed killer maybe Like, it it is a weed killer, and it's advertised that it doesn't kill your grass, it just targets the weeds. Exactly. Would you say that that's, like, a similar concept to the specificity you're talking about?
1: Yep, that's exactly it. It's a lot of, um, a lot of chemicals actually have that specificity, and it comes down to their three-dimensional structure or the way they actually attack. So some of them, um... For example, I don't know too much about pesticides specifically, but different plants have different genetics and therefore are different. So things like grass versus, you know, a dandelion weed would be very different genetically, look different physically, and therefore uh, the chemical would not be able to basically see the grass or identify the grass as something it wants to attack.
0: Okay. So you are in the game of changing you know, the structure and adding things and subtracting things and modifying things. Uh, do, is there a way, is there like something simple you can just add to a peptide that's like, oh, now it knows to attack this type of bacteria or is that like pretty complicated?
1: Um, That's a good question, actually. It would be nice if it was that simple. It is a bit more complicated, but there are some general things that... Uh, be done so for example we talked about the outer balloon or the outer membrane that it's made with lipids um, so that's um you know something that does not like water so you can add lipids to peptides and that helps bring them into the cell because the lipid will interact with other lipids and kind of that like oil and water separation ratio so adding a lipid will pull the peptide out of the water and into cells Um, There's also different what we call charges on bacterial membranes versus human membranes, and if there are different charges, let's say there's a positive charge on the outside, you can put a negative charge on your peptide, and that will also attract it in. So there are some general rules like that that do exist, but in terms of, um, yes, going back to specificity, a lot of them have uh, a very select target. So although we think of the membrane as kind of a uniform general thing, it's not quite the case. There's different things on the membrane that can be recognized. So there's different sugars, there's other proteins that would be different from cell to cell. So for example, um, a lot of cancer treatments actually are looking at that because there would be peptides and other compounds that can target, you know, a cancerous cell versus a healthy cell because cancerous cells will have a different uh, outer membrane or different things on their outer membrane that normal healthy cells don't. So there are things like that, that if you know the target, you can kind of think back and design the peptide for your specific desired target.
0: So this is kind of like a Trojan horse situation. You, you, you know, you, you put your peptide into a little Trojan horse that is more, you know, loving these lipids on the outside of the membrane. So it gets in and once it gets in, ah, that's it. <laughs> it's it's going to attack now. Yeah, and that's
1: a very good analogy for it, for sure. You trick the cells into taking your peptide.
0: Uh, so you're just a deceitful person. Yes. <laughs> Or, or at least you create deceitful peptides. We won't make character judgments today, but you do create deceitful peptides.
1: Poor peptides. I feel like they're getting a bad reputation for them.
0: they're very cute. Oh, okay. I'm all right. Let's let's shine some light. What have peptides done for us?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think the most famous example is probably insulin.
0: Oh, that's a peptide.
1: Yes, it is. Um, I believe it's a three part peptide. This is called A, B, and C, Um, and when they act together, of course, we've heard lots about uh, life without insulin and how devastating that can be to a human body, and the administration of insulin saves lives. I don't know the actual number, but I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of people who use insulin daily or whatever their um, requirements are, and without it, their body would unfortunately no longer be able to sustain life, so I think that's one big example that stems from i guess nearby in toronto um and developing insulin for commercial use versus just finding it which it naturally occurs in your body um we just found ways to administer it in a helpful way to people whose bodies can't quite make their own properly
0: so this is a good point and i know you're not like a pharmaceutical scientist or anything like that yeah i know so i'm going to tread the waters but You were talking about finding peptides in nature, that they're all around us, but you want to modify them. Sort of like how this uh, insulin was modified in order to be more useful uh, for administering. Um, I don't know anything about the insulin. Uh, I don't know how it's been modified, and, and I'm guessing you don't either. However, is it possible to say that they potentially made some similar modifications like you do in order to make it more stable?
1: That's a good question. In a way, yes, um, because it does have to, for example, be packaged, right? You have to be able to administer it. And there's a lot of things, for example, that you can't just put on a shelf and it'll be good for 20 years. Uh, A lot of biological components will unfortunately deteriorate and not be good. So there's a lot of things also that go into a treatment like that that might not have to do with specifically that peptide or that compound. Um, but would have to do with, you know, a longer shelf life, being able to administer it to a human body, how you administer it, whether it's, you know, through the mouth orally or it's an injection. So things like that would also have to be taken account uh, when designing these compounds because you don't want, you know, to make something that has what we say a half life or the, it will degrade in 20, 30 minutes because that's not really plausible as a marketable drug. So there are a lot of other things to take into consideration than the actual uh, modification on the specific peptide. So the modulation or the things that are in that, um, I guess if you wanna say a drug or in that treatment are also play a very big role. And I guess the more uh, it's been in the news right now with COVID is the differences in the modulation of different vaccines. There's people who might be allergic to PEG. It's kind of the one that has been a lot in the news. So PEG has nothing to do with the treatment itself. It has nothing to do with the spike protein, mRNA, nothing like that. It just helps administer that drug and allow it, or sorry, that vaccine and allow it in, to interact in the body in a meaningful way, rather than just being degraded and eliminated really, really fast, rather than you know degrading even on the shelf before it even makes it into people
0: yeah it's it's almost in a, in a in a broad way like the use of preservatives in, in bread yes exactly. so I have talked bad about peptides i I have I have said some very insensitive things about peptides today. so allow me to reframe it and let me know if you agree with this. You don't create deceitful peptides. you allow you you help peptides become the best versions of themselves.
1: Oh, that's really cute. I like
0: that. Yes. All right. We'll go with that. Is there anything (laughs) left you have to say? Do you have anything that you could say that would sum up everything we talked about? Do you have a moral of the story? Is there something that you want to preach about?
1: Yeah, I think for me, what's been interesting and what drew me to that interface of chemistry and biology is that like biology and nature has done such a good job on creating some of these compounds. So once you get a little bit deeper and look at their structures, so if you were to look at the chemical structure of a peptide, it is crazy. Like it is so creative. It's something that I don't think people could come up with from scratch. It's not something we would know innately how to do. So nature has done such a good job of providing us so many examples. You know, like we talked about insulin. The other one that's big in my field is penicillin which was the first antibiotic used, and we could never come up with something like that. Like, if you look at the structures, they're just, it's just so cool. (laughs) And in order to, I guess, start from somewhere, I think nature has given us a boost in that regard. So a lot of my work looks at native peptides is what we call them. So peptides that occur in nature, you know, different cells that make it, different organisms that make them, and what we can do with them, that comes onto us. So being able to take what nature has provided us and kind of take it into the next step where it's actually useful in our society in a meaningful way, I think that's a lot of what I'm interested in doing and what drew me into this interface of using chemistry to help biology get to a place where it's useful for society.
0: Wow, that that's kind of beautifully put. You know, you're given, you're given the clay um, and you're here making the statues.
1: That's good. Yeah, I think... Um, I had my, I was trying to explain this to my dad, I think. Um, and there was a group of us chatting and they're like, oh, it's like a Christmas tree and you're putting all the lights on it and decorating it with different things. And at the end, it's a beautiful tree. It's still an evergreen tree. It just looks prettier.
0: (laughs) That's yeah. That's a good point. Like fundamentally, it's a really good thing, but you're just embellishing it. Yes. All right. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing uh, what you do with us today.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thank you for Yes, chatting with me and caring about peptides.
0: And you know I do. I, I'm, I'm a person for the peptides as of today.
1: Perfect. Recruiting people for the club. It's
0: going well. <laughs> the, peptide, the peptide party. Now that the episode is over, I want to take this opportunity to apologize to the families of any peptides that I've spoken ill of in the past. Honestly, my actions and my words are not necessarily representative of my beliefs. However, I'm going to work in the future to be a better person and not be so vicious against peptides who are really there to just do a job. And, and that's, that's that. And in the spirit of correcting some things that may have been wrong about us in the past, it is time for the episode's fact check. Because on We Know Some Stuff, we are here to admit that we don't know everything. So we do a quick little fact check just to make sure that we don't leave any loose hanging ends. So both Serena and I listened to the episode a bunch of times, and we found a few things that do need correcting. About two-thirds of the way through the episode, Serena says that adding lipids to a peptide could help bring that peptide into the cell, where although that is kind of technically true, it's not completely true. Adding lipids to the peptide is going to help bring the peptide into the cell membrane, which is more accustomed to having the lipid in it, whereas the cell itself doesn't really love lipids, so adding that lipid to the peptide is going to help it bring it into the membrane which is a whole lot closer than not inside the cell at all. In addition, Serena also wanted to clarify that most cell membranes are negative so they put positive charged lipids on these peptides in order to get them in. Uh, However, that's not the entire case. Oftentimes you'll have a reversal of those charges but in, you know, the the majority of cases we're going to be seeing uh, the negative membrane situation. And with that, we have completed our fact check and this episode of We Know Some Stuff.